God, our Father, we're so very humbled to consider your great love for us that not in spite of our sinfulness, but because of our sinfulness, Jesus died for us. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that nothing we do could ever measure up to your standard of perfect holiness. That our righteousness is as filthy rags when compared to yours. And so we needed a sacrifice. And you gave your son. And to many of us here today, he has already become our savior. We thank you, Father, for his love for us. We thank you, Father, for the gift of abundant and eternal life and salvation. And we pray for those who have never trusted Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that even this morning, they would make that decision and be changed forever for good. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You've got your worship folders with you. You've got notes on the inside that you can take your notes there if you'd like. Also, you might notice at the bottom, it reminds you that you can follow along in the Bible app. It's called Version or the Bible app that you could download on your phone. And it has the blanks there and you can take notes. You can either share those things socially or email them to yourself or whatever. And of course, then our podcast every week are recorded and you can Get them on iTunes or any other service or straight from our website to follow up. We continue our sermon series, Following Jesus. This is the 187th sermon from this series. Yes, I'm counting. They're numbered that way. We'll finish next year or the year after that because we preach about 15 to 20 sermons a year out of this series as we're following Jesus in a harmony of the gospel fashion. The story we're going to encounter today of Jesus' death on the cross and his burial is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the reason we're considering John's version today is that John includes an important fact, an important person that the other three Gospels don't mention, and that's Nicodemus. That'll be our last point on our outline as we seek to apply the truth of this lesson to ourselves is considering Nicodemus. But we think about death and burial. One indisputable certainty of life is that someday everybody will die, right? I've heard it said before and I've quoted it before that the facts or the statistics on death are pretty impressive. One out of every one people die. Amen? I mean, yes, there are some exceptions biblically, but the vast majority of people, we know we are going to die and that death is part of life. You consider what the Bible says about that. Job, in a long monologue starting in chapter 12 through chapter 14, says that uh, Job 14, 1 and 2 says, Mortals born of women are a few days and full of trouble. They spring up like flowers and wither away like fleeting shadows and don't endure. Moses, as written in Psalm 90, verse 10, says, Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but troubles and sorrows, and they pass quickly, and we fly away. 
James in chapter 4, verse 14 says that our life is but a vapor that appears and vanishes away. When compared to eternity, it is. And then the writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 9, verse 27, that it's appointed once for man to die and after that to face judgment. These are all pretty sobering considerations of life, right? Here I was a few minutes ago praying, thanking God for the life we have, and we hear of these biblical authors telling us life is short, life is hard, woe is me. But consider the words of Jesus from John eight fifty one. He says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He means eternal death, separation from God and hell. And consider the words of Jesus that are our scripture memory verse for the month that we can put up on the screen now. That scripture memory verse of the month from John chapter 11 is Jesus pointing forward to his death and resurrection. And let's read it together. John eleven twenty five through 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? John eleven twenty five through 26. It's as if Jesus is asking us the same question today. He's the resurrection and the life. And if we believe in him, we'll never die. And it's for us, each and every one of us, to decide, do we believe this? If you haven't already turned to our key text for today, please do so quickly. And if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, would you do so as we turn to John chapter 19. We'll begin in verse 31 through the end of the chapter, verse 42. John chapter 19, verses 31 and following. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus... And found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and this testimony is true. He knows what he tells the truth, that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that. The scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one whom they pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. So Joseph was a disciple. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. May God add to the reading of his word. Thank you. You could be seated. On your outline this morning, the first of your points is this, and that's that Jesus actually died. 
Jesus actually died. Well, why in the world is that a point, Pastor Aaron? Most of us know he died. We assume he died. Yeah, well, not everybody does. Not everybody believes or understood even then that Jesus was a real person and that he really died. But as we walk back through the scripture here, we see evidence thereof. Look with us at verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation because the next day was a special Sabbath, a Sabbath day, Jewish worship day, and it was the day of the Passover in which lambs would be offered as sacrifices for the sins of the people for that year. And because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Now, Jewish law, as recorded even in Deuteronomy chapter 21, says that there should not be any uh, death like that evident, apparent, on the Sabbath day. And so they would hide it, cover it up, do something, uh, uh, do it away with it, bury it if something or someone was dead on the Sabbath. And so following this fastidiously and meticulously, the Jewish leaders, although they pressed to have Jesus crucified, unjustly and wrongly, and don't seem to see their sinfulness there, want to avoid their sinfulness in having Jesus on the cross during their Sabbath day. And then this interesting fact about breaking the legs of those crucified. Remember I said last week that at the time of Jesus' death in Palestine alone, 30,000 people had been crucified by the Romans. In Palestine alone, crucifixion was common. How to kill people in this way was common. And it was also common, so much so that there's a Latin word for it, uh, that I'm not going to say because it's about 12 syllables long and I'll mess it up, uh, uh, that symbolizes the breaking of the legs of the accused. So that when they were hanging on the cross by wrists, Uh, excuse me, nails probably in their wrists so it wouldn't rip out or they might have been tied by their wrist. And with their feet either tied or nailed together, probably again through their ankles so that their bones would hold and not break and tear. When they're on the cross in that position, they could, with much pain, push up from their feet in order to breathe, to expand their chest cavity so their diaphragm could breathe. But when you broke their legs, which would be painful in and of itself, and they could no longer push up, they were then left to hang by their hands and would very quickly thereafter die of asphyxiation. They would drown in their own bodily liquids as their lungs could no longer expire. This is what they intended to do to hasten the death of the two criminals, one on either side of Jesus and Jesus himself. But when the Roman soldiers who were experts in crucifixion and death came to the first man, they broke his legs. Came to the second man, they broke his legs. When they came to Jesus, they were surprised. He was already dead. It normally took days when somebody was crucified with their feet and their hands attached. Two days, three days for somebody to expire on the cross. It was a terrible, cruel, wicked death. And in the meantime, all sorts of things could be happening to your physical body while you're baking in the sun and animals or birds are landing on you or whatever else, right? But here in just a few hours' time, Jesus died. Now, we know why he died because we saw that a couple weeks ago, right? It was that Jesus gave up his spirit. And remember, the Greek word there was that he actually made a 
choice, an act of his will to die. So it was not by the will of man that Jesus died, but Jesus died when he was ready to die before man even thought he would die. So that when they came to him, they did not have to break his legs because he'd already passed of his own accord. So your question there asks, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, we're just stating that he actually died, but the question would be, why did he have to die? Remember in Philippians chapter 2, it talks about Jesus and how he humbled himself and he became appearance and he took on the appearance of a man and humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And think about Romans chapter 5 that I read in, um, uh, for our offertory. And if you read the rest of Romans chapter 5, you see the great sacrifice God made for us through Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27, I mentioned already, let's mention it again with verse 28. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, you might write that one down. This says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him. Jesus died to bear our sins. That's why. Let's move on to verse 34 and your second point. Your second point says that Jesus had a real body. He actually died, yes, and in order to actually die, you would presume, logically, that there had to be a real body. Look at verse 34. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, you've probably heard conjecture before. What kind of physical trauma would have had happened to Jesus' body that he literally, the water welled up in his uh, chest cavity uh, because of his drowning uh, or his, the severity of his punishment through the flogging that he had already taken care of. Uh, and so I can't conjecture on that here, but the fact that he was pierced and this blood and water flows. This is one of those testimonial type items that tells us that Jesus' body wasn't fake. It wasn't imaginary. It was a real body. But let's get to your question there. Your question there is, why does this matter? Here's why it matters. John's gospel was written about 60 years after Jesus' death. Maybe not quite so many, maybe more like 55 years. But by that time, there had arisen different heresies in the Christian faith. And one of those heresies, remember heresies are half-truths, right? Uh, One of those heresies was called docetism. Docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, docetism. And it, it is from the Greek word dokian, which means to seem, or the word dokesis, which means apparition or phantom. And what docetists believe and taught was that Jesus just was like a ghost or a phantom. He looked like he had a real body, but it was not a real body. Therefore, when he walked on water, it was like a ghost because he would think because there was no substance to him. When he walked through a wall or healed somebody, it's because he was a spirit, not a man. So when John includes a fact like Jesus' body being pierced and blood and water come out, blood and water presumptively can't come out of a ghost. Well, if they can look like a ghost, can they not make ghost blood and ghost water? I don't know. But the fact is that John is trying to demonstrate to his readers of his gospel that he had a real body. And he goes further by what comes next. What comes next? The third point on your outline 
is that Jesus' death was observed. Jesus' death was observed. Now, again, why does this matter? Let's see what John says in verse 35. He says, the man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that, you know, I love the so that. What's the reason? You may also believe. John is the man that's testifying here. John is not using his name. Remember elsewhere in the gospel, he doesn't refer to himself by name. He says as close as he'll get is by saying the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know by John's testimony and the testimony of the other gospels that John was at the foot of the cross with the women when Jesus was crucified. And John is saying to all those who are reading him then and all of us who are listening to him now and throughout history, I was there. He had a real body and he really died. We saw it. And you can count on my testimony. I'm not telling a story here. In John 21, 24, John says that his testimony is true. And that he's offering his, this testimony that you might believe. Your question there is, why are witnesses like this so important? Why are witnesses like this so important? Well, anytime there's a major happening, a turning point, something big happens, we want to hear the story. And if you're like me, you want to hear it from more than one person. And then if you're like us, you want to see it, right? I mean, like if I see smoke coming someplace in Lincoln, where do I go first? I go to Twitter. I go to Twitter and I start scrolling through my Twitter stream and seeing who else is, you know, hashtag uh, LNK, Lincoln. That, uh, oh, there's a fire here. Or, you know, Lincoln Fire and Rescue says there's a house on fire here. Or Lincoln PD reports, you know, there's a two-alarm fire here. And uh, that's where I go, right? And then if you're like me, you want to find out more than one opinion. Are there any pictures of it? Is the news there? Is there a video of it so we can see what it looks like? Whatever it is. Well, there's no Twitter in John's day. There's no pictures. There's no video But John is saying, I saw it, and it was real, and you can count on me. For my Bible, I have to look just across the page. You might have to turn the page. John 20, 31. Go there real quick. Look at what John writes in John 20, 31, and it helps us answer this question. Why are witnesses like this so important? Look at what he says. He said, but these, everything Jesus did. Well, let's go back to verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So John's saying, I only had so much space to write here. He did a whole lot more. Now look at verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying, the reason I wrote my gospel, the reason I tell these stories is I'm a witness of it so that you who read it You who read it throughout history will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, eternal life in his name. Can we get an amen? Because you are believers in Jesus, because you have heard the gospel of Jesus, because John was a witness even to you and to me. The fourth point on your outline is that Jesus' death fulfilled prophecy. Jesus' death fulfilled prophecy prophecy. Well, John points it out to us in verse 36 and 37. 
These things happen so that Scripture would be fulfilled. And there's two of them here. One in verse 36 and one in verse 37. The first one is that not one of his bones would be broken. Now, that could refer to Psalm 34, which is talking about um, the, the Messiah or someone that could be the Messiah being sacrificed. And it very well may be, but John probably had in mind, going back earlier than Psalm 34, to speaking about the Paschal Lamb, the sacrificial lamb that the Jewish people were to offer a lamb without blemish or defect that wouldn't have a broken bone, of course, not even a scratch on it or a cut. And that Jesus was such a lamb without a broken bone, offered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That's Exodus twelve forty six and Numbers 9, 12 um, that John is probably referring to. But look at verse 37. And as another scripture says, they will look on one, on the one they have pierced. Now this attribution is absolutely tr- clear. It's from Zechariah 12.10. Your Bible may even have a footnote to that. Um, it's interesting to note that Zechariah, though it is a short book, it's one that we call a minor prophet because it's smaller. It's minor compared to the major prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, right? Is the second most quoted book in the entire New Testament. Zechariah is full of rich predictions and prophecies of who the Christ would be, of facts about his life, how he would live, and how he would die. And Zechariah says in chapter 12, verse 10, that he would be pierced, the Messiah, the Savior, would be pierced for our sins. Jesus' death fulfills these two prophecies, and these are just the two that John mentions here. There are many more that it fulfills. We don't have time to go there at this point. Even Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, John wrote Revelation as well as the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He quotes this of Zechariah 12. So your question of application on this fourth point is, what does this teach me? If Jesus' death fulfilled prophecy, what do we learn from this? What do we deduce from the fact that Jesus' death fulfills prophecy? Well, I'll tell you a few things. Here's the number one. I'll hold up my first finger. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Here's what sovereign means. Rule, reign, authority, power. It means if God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. If God says it will be so, it will be so. And when you know that God is sovereign, what can you know about God? You can trust him. That his word is truth. If his word makes you a promise, you can trust the promise is true. You can count on him. And if he says that you are saved, you are saved. And if he says he's going to provide for you, he'll provide for you. Whatever his word says, whatever the promise you need, you can trust it. That's what it teaches me. If he prophesied hundreds, nay, thousands of years before his death, exactly about his death and how it would occur, you can trust that he's God and that he's going to keep his word in your life as well. Hebrews 4.12 says the, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the divisions of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is truth and God's word is powerful and you can count on God's word. Let's move to the fifth point on your outline. That Jesus' burial was customary. 
Now, this one may not seem important, but we, we do need to deal with this to help explain because we're not Jews of 2,000 years ago, and we don't know how and why this would go, and there's some other facts along the way to discern. And so let's go to verse 38 in our scripture. Jesus' burial was customary. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, and he was a member of the Sanhedrin, by the way, um, the council that made the decision and forced Pilate against Pilate's will to put Jesus to death. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. So he was a member of their number, and maybe he's full of regret that he didn't speak up when they had Jesus on trial in the kangaroo court. But now he's ready to come out and let everybody know he's a believer in Jesus or it took the body away. Verse 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus. We'll talk about Nicodemus in our final point here in a minute, but go down to verse 40. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen that was in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. Now, the Egyptians had already for thousands of years been embalming people. Our modern-day embalming practices are based on what the Egyptians were doing uh, uh, millennia ago. But Jewish burial custom, they didn't do that. They left the body whole. They didn't, you know take out fluids or take out bodily organs or anything like that. But what they would do is wrap him. Now, if you're here and you've seen the way we portray it in our Easter pageant, keep in mind, we can't do everything the way they did in the Bible. You know, we're wrapping him in a sheet and placing him in our little tomb over here, right, as we portray it. But what would really happen would take some time. They had about three hours before sundown, and they were probably moving quite rapidly after Jesus died, going to Pilate, getting permission to remove Jesus, having the Roman guards say, yes, he's actually dead, so yeah, they could take him. And then rushing back to the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And it says that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds to, of spices and aloe. Now, what they would do then is they would take long strips of cloth, put in there the uh, spice, the myrrh, that would be dried and scented, and add aloe to it, fold it over, and then use that like a bandage. So rather than just a sheet or two wrapped around Jesus, Jesus was buried looking not unlike a mummy, with these strips wrapped all the way around his body. So he would be wrapped up tight, presumptively. And then 75 pounds was the amount that they would use for royalty, a common person couldn't have afforded that. And so they would do the best they could to fend off the smells that would come as a body decayed. But a royal person, this was the amount, 75 pounds of spices and aloe, and would wrap him and put those strips around his body. Then anything they had left over, they would put under and around his body before they sealed the tomb. Why is this important? Joseph and Nicodemus, John and the ladies, although they had heard countless times Jesus say, I'm going to rise on the third day, I'm not saying they didn't believe it, but they didn't compute. They were wrapping him up to stay in the tomb, not just putting him with a sheet on so he could go, ta-da, I'm awake. They expected him to stay dead. Your question there asks, what do I observe here? What do I observe here? And frankly, I think I just answered it. That they buried him like he was a king, but they expected him to stay a dead king. They did not make it easy for Jesus to escape 
from the grave because he'd have been wrapped from head to toe with strips around and around and around his body. Let's get to your sixth and final point on your outline. I like this one. I preached a whole sermon on it years ago. Jesus' death changed Nicodemus. That's in verse 39. Jesus' death changed Nicodemus. Go back to verse 39. It says he was accompanied, so he, Joseph of Arimathea, was accompanied by Nicodemus. And then John inserts the comment, in case you forgot, who had earlier visited Jesus at night. And then they mention the myrrh and the aloes and the 75 pounds. Turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We portray it in our Easter pageant. If you're like me, you can hear Joanne Sinkula's voice reading it right now. I should get Joanne up here and get her a microphone, right? Now, there was a man named Nic- uh, 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 of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who comes from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. And, you know, you can hear the various men who have portrayed Nicodemus at night over here saying those words. I can hear Bob Gubster's voice right now. And in reply, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And we hear our friends that have portrayed Jesus on our stage in that voice. But away from our friends that have portrayed back to the scripture. So they have this conversation in which Nicodemus is asking a genuine question. He wants to know, you're talking about salvation and a relationship with God that is different than what I know as a member of the Sanhedrin who've been taught all this Jewish law. What are you getting at, Jesus? I mean, Nicodemus is genuinely interested. And then Jesus throws him off a bit, if you will, by saying you've got to be born of water and spirit. Nicodemus says, well, I know, you know, when you're born physically, you're born and there's water involved in that process. But what do you mean be born spiritually? And so Jesus explains this to him, and Nicodemus must be going, oh, I think I understand, but I'm not sure maybe I need to think about it some more. Thanks, Jesus. See you. Off he goes. Turn over a few pages in your Bible to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 and verse 50. In John chapter 7, the Jewish leaders, about six months before Jesus' crucifixion, chronologically, are having debate about what to do with Jesus, right? They could have captured him. They could have done something with him. They know they want to kill him already. But look at John 7, verse 50. Nicodemus in the Sanhedrin, a member of the Sanhedrin who had come to Jesus years earlier, who had gone earlier and asked one of their own, he says, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? Now, had Nicodemus already become a Christian? Had Nicodemus placed his faith in Jesus for salvation at this point? We don't know. But we do know that Nicodemus had honest questions. Nicodemus was bringing the Sanhedrin to do the right thing, to follow their own laws, and he was doing it in defense of Jesus. So Nicodemus goes from somebody who's curious about the claims of Jesus and John chapter 3, to defending Jesus and his claims in John chapter 7. Now in John chapter 19, Nicodemus is risking everything for Jesus. Because the rest of the Sanhedrin is going to go, what in the world are you doing? That guy is our enemy. 
You're giving all these spices and all this stuff and burying him like a king, you traitor. He'd have lost his friends. He'd have lost his position. He'd have lost everything because of his faith in Jesus. My point is that Jesus' death changed Nicodemus. And then you've got a question. How has knowing Jesus changed me? How has knowing Jesus changed me? Is your life any different than it was before you came to faith in Christ? Does your life look any different than the average person that lived next door to you or works with you or uh, you hang out with? Not just that you have a Jesus fish on your car or wear a Christian cross on your neck and listen to Christian music. But is your life really different? Do you think different? Do you speak different? Do you act different? Is the evidence of Christ in your life that people sense it even in your spirit that they're like, man, this person's different? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 says that he saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his purpose and grace, God's purpose and grace in my life, in your life. This grace was given us in Jesus Christ from the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel of Jesus saves you. The gospel of Jesus should change you. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, In verse 55 and following, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Jesus died a real death in a real body. John testified of his truth. Nicodemus gave up everything because of it. Are you thankful for it? And have you committed your life to live in the victory that he's purchased for you through it? Let's pray. God, our Father, we're so moved when we consider these words from John 19 and from the rest of your Bible as we've studied this morning of who Jesus is and what he did for us. And all of us know, God, that we have sinned, we've broken your laws, that we've lied, so we're liars, we've stolen, so we're thieves. We've looked lustfully, so we're adulterers. We've hated, so it's as if we're murderers in heart. And your word says, if we've kept all the commandments but broken even one, it's as if we're guilty of breaking all of them. And your word says that our righteousness, when we seek to compare ourselves to others, is like filthy rags. And we needed a Savior And Jesus, your son, was that Savior. 
So God, we rejoice at your love for us and we are humbled by what you've done for us, Jesus. And we pray now that each and every person here would know that they're saved. And if they're not, that they'd walk down this aisle right now and make that decision and let us celebrate with them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.